Welcome to the Blockdown Podcast, brought to you by EOK Digital, the number one blockchain PR and communications agency. Every week, we're sharing pearls of wisdom about the world of blockchain and cryptocurrency. Don't forget to subscribe and review our podcast so we can bring you even more great content. Bang, and we are back. Next is a VC panel talking about the evolution of crypto VC investments. Here's, here to introduce the panel and moderate this one is Zia Word. Zia, the panel is all yours. Take it away. Hi, guys. Thanks so much for joining us for this panel. Um, we will for sure have a lot to talk about. The space is uh, is pretty wild right now. So I want to kind of introduce my panel and then we'll kind of dig right into it and and, and get chatting about what's happening. So um, first of all, we've got um, John Cole. He is from uh, Galaxy Digital, who many of you may know is one of the biggest species in the space. We also have Mark Caccia from Cytail, who earlier early investors in uh, Polkadot um, and uh, and uh, Ocean Protocol. Uh, and then we've got Jalak from Future Perfect Ventures. So um, I'd love to kind of hand over to you guys to do your own sort of mini intros, and then we'll jump right in and, and, and start start the panel. So over to you, John. Great. Well, thank you, Zia. So um, I'm at Galaxy, where my partner and I run the firm's investment team. Uh, and I've been doing this for a few years now professionally. Before that, uh, was a hobbyist, got into crypto as a miner, which was a huge mistake, but I keep my first GPU as a, you know, a little souvenir. Uh, and, you know, we, you know, I imagine the course of the panel will talk a lot more about how we think about investing. So I'll, um, you know, spare that for later and uh, I'll let Mark take it from here. Hi, well, thanks, Jonathan. Yeah, uh, so we've been running uh, blockchain VC since uh, 2017. My background is in hedge funds. Uh, so I actually invested in Mike Novogratz's fund way back when, when he was still doing that, or at least, uh, uh, yeah, way back when. Um, and we approached it a, a little bit differently uh, than many in that we uh, wanted to invest in the business cases more than uh, crypto. And then we ended up investing in business cases that had tokens, um, you know, and, and I think, yeah, so... I'll leave the rest for, for the conversation. Hi, I'm uh, Jalak Jobin-Putra, founder of Future Perfect Ventures. Um, it's a fund that I launched in 2014 to invest in decentralized technology. I've been a VC since uh, 99 as at Intel Capital out in the Valley. And uh, after I went to my first um, Bitcoin conference in 2013, I just became really excited about the potential of crypto uh, to help create new business models. And so we're currently investing out of our third fund. Awesome, thanks a lot guys. So first of all, I kind of wanna talk about the general market conditions and I touched on it a little bit in the intro. Um, you know, there's a lot of money sort of floating around the market right now and we're seeing lots of different um, vehicles um, crop up, which I'll I'll get into later. But I know a few, and you've mentioned in your in your um intros there that a few of you from kind of traditional venture capital or or hedge funds. 
What, in your opinion, are, I guess, your the major differences um, in your approach when you invest in um, Web3 or tokenized assets? Um, I'll over to you, Jalak, first. Sure. So, so we have kind of evolved with the, the market from our first fund um, through our, our current fund right now. Um, so our, when we launched uh, FPV in uh, 2014, um, you know, ETH was about to um, uh, ICO. Um, you know, I was a personal investor in, in um, uh, Bitcoin, uh, but became uh, really excited, as, as I said, about the underlying technology and then the infrastructure that would have to be built out around tokenization. So our early investments were companies like blockchain.com, um, which is one of the largest crypto wallets in the world based in the UK, uh, Abra, um, BitPesa, uh, which is now called AZA, uh, focused on uh, currency conversion using blockchain technology in Africa. Um, so these were a lot of like either the infrastructure companies, uh, Blockstream is another one, um, or uh, companies where I saw first use cases such as uh, BitPesa. Uh, now, with the, the second fund, we started taking more token exposure since there was more regulatory clarity. Um, we did an SPV to do DOT in 2017 in their first round. We've uh, more recently done the graph. Uh, protocol, which is that uh, you know what I consider like the meat and middleware. So, uh, so, and we continue to do equity. So, I, I think we're we're now getting into where you know we're going to see the creation of new business models across sectors and in, in finance as well as media. Um, we've seen that with NFTs, and so we like to be flexible in, in the way we invest. Um, you know, traditional VC is, is very much ownership driven. And, um, you know, I think that the opportunity um, around crypto and, and particularly around tokens is going to really change the VC industry and the way VCs invest. Um, and, uh, and, and so I think that's exciting to, to be a part of that process um, and, and work with other funds that are thinking more creatively about how to, how to fund these projects. Yeah, awesome. And Mark, you mentioned that, um, you know, you you kind of think about things a bit differently. Um, you sort of, uh, you look at the business cases, but that and then that just so happens to have a sort of tokenized um, aspect to them. So so I'd love to hear a little bit more about that and, and I guess your approach approach. Uh, Sure. Do that. Thanks. Yeah, so we learned a lot uh, with the first fund uh, as well, the difference between token and equity investments. And, you know, as the as we're liquidating fund one now and about to launch fund two, we've been researching and pre-funding uh, a couple of investments and, you know, equity versus token. So from the beginning, we always try to look for a, a fundamental value creation proposition and and see how that can be captured in whichever asset that we're investing in. And we saw in practice, um, you know, when things that had a token had a tough time, the token could survive. Uh, but when you invest in an equity and it has a tough time, they either raise they need to raise more capital or they don't survive. And so that's just a sort of very simple kind of argument for being more of a token investor. And you know, so. Given that we're investing in a, in a pretty still pretty new space, um, 
it's a little bit more challenging, or at least was challenging for me coming, uh, being a first time fund manager to raise longer, like pure venture type money, like a 12 year fund. We started with a five year fund and we're liquidating after three and a half years up, you know, a very nice, uh, a return and fund two will also be, uh, you know, a five-year fund. And so, you know, to have the, an eye on liquidity, but uh, investing in early stage, a token is very useful for that as well. And so sort of, if I was to boil it down into a nutshell, if we can have the um, fundamental sort of eye to value creation and value capture and, and have that as a backstop for the valuations where we invest, and then we can hopefully take advantage of cycles like we're experiencing right now where everything goes up, but like in ways that it's just very hard to understand. I'm glad you said that it's very hard to understand. <laughs> very frank coming from a VC, I love that. <laughs> um, so, um, John, uh, just before I, I, I believe Santiago's uh, joined us, but just before um, I intro Santiago, um, John, you know, obviously you mentioned you kind of came from a mining background and so it wasn't necessarily traditional VC. And so I'd love to hear about your kind of lens on things and and what brought you to 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 doing what you're doing and and, how, and if you think that your your background maybe gives you a different kind of approach or view. Yeah, you know, I was a, I was a hobbyist miner, but I was a professional bond trader at Morgan Stanley. And uh, all that taught me is how fucked uh, the you know, current rails are. And like the you know, big thing we're trying to do here is build better rails. I want to build a financial system that I'm part, proud to be a part of. It was not the case. Uh, and, you know, I'm sure everyone here in the audience that's ever tried to do a bank wire uh, wants to file assault charges against their banks uh, as soon as that's complete because it's such an egregious act, especially after you transfer some stable coins. Matthias said, I think the main difference in operating in this space uh, as an investor is just that the definition of what it means to be an investor in crypto, it, it, it does not, it's not a one-to-one -one mapping from the old world's definition, right? Because these assets are not pieces of paper that sit they're, they're alive, right? The things that we can do with one of the assets that we purchased from the teams that we back very early on, it, it, it's a, you know, again, it's, it's a living, breathing things that we can do so many other things with, uh, as opposed to just something that sits either like on some database and never moves, right? If you think of most assets that traditional venture investors and other investors invest in, the only times you interact with the actual asset are, is when you purchase it, it moves hands. And then when you sell it, it moves hands. In between, it does nothing. Versus these assets right now, we're talking about uh, at the most basic level, voting for a governance change, you know, but then there's using it as collateral, using the collateral from the collateral as collateral, right? The DeFi, we, we, in our team, we talk about DeFi as a collateral machine. Uh, so it, the entire landscape is different. The way that a team can leverage their treasury is very different because in the traditional world, right, you spend seven, eight years with an illiquid asset. And then every few years you engage in price discovery as you fundraise. It takes months, right? Meanwhile, uh, here, most of these teams have a liquid uh, treasury that is priced by the market at all times. And that... So I, I really can't tell you, I mean, I really think it's just, it's so different across the board. Uh, so the background in mining has given some insight into the operating part of this difference. Like, oh wait, you know, when you're touching assets through mining, you're performing an activity for the sake of the network. 
And that's how the rest of DeFi really uh, operates. And we're doing stuff for our networks. Yeah, and actually, I'd love to kind of dig into that a little bit more further down the uh, the, the discussion because I know there's a couple of uh, different, maybe slightly differing views on the panel about um, you know the value of of some of these, um, I guess, mechanisms in in DeFi, and and so I'd love to kind of dig into that. But before we kind of get into that, I'd want to um, just introduce um, Santiago Santos from uh, Parify, and Santi, if you could um, just introduce yourself and give a little bit of your background, that would be fantastic. Yeah, great. Hey, everyone. Um, I won't be boring, I guess. But yeah, quick background. Um, uh, I'm a Parify Capital. We're, we're a DeFi-focused fund. And so we started investing. Uh, you know, my partner, Ben, and I come from traditional finance um, world. And um, you know, for us, it felt like uh, the thesis that we started making early on was that um, blockchains are very well suited to disrupt uh, the financial services industry. Uh, and similar to John's point, you know, I think uh, everyone can sympathize that just finance is a very broken experience, especially when you go overseas. Um, you know, most Americans probably think that Venmo works everywhere, uh, and it doesn't. Um, but, you know, just uh, uh, from that standpoint, you know, we've been early supporters of a lot of the DeFi networks uh, that have come um, to life. And, um, you know, uh, I guess very perhaps uniquely different from some other funds, we we take a very active approach to investing. Um not in like the barbarians at the gate because you know uh type of style for private equity but more so staking providing liquidity uh being active in governance um and so that's um our approach how we think about um aligning ourselves with with really good teams and founders in DeFi. that as john also said um you know are, are not just porting over existing primitives in the financial world but also creating new ones like flash loans and uh you know through composability just adding uh, a whole new dimension of things that can be possible by piecing together these money legos fantastic thanks santi um so we spoke a little bit about how fast-paced the the industry is at the moment so i want to I guess, ask you, and it's kind of something that I, you know, I, I think about every day. It's like, how do you keep up with everything that goes on in this industry on a day-to-day basis? And how do you, I guess, make those decisions quickly and effectively so that, um, so that you know, you're, you're staying ahead and you're actually staying relevant in the space? And that's to, to, to anybody that wants to take it. Go ahead, please. It's open discussion. I think the first way you keep up with it is understanding that you can't. Uh, and you get a team that you, you know, have high conviction in their ability to support you and you supporting them. But it's really a losing game to try and keep up with everything. And so, you know, some of the things that we do is understanding that, like, hey, if we try and chase everything, we will fail because the pace of innovation in this, it's just, it's, it's, unbelievable because the time to get started is you know the barrier to entry is is nil the uh, fact that anyone can come off and pick up parts off the shelf and just get started means that every day there's going to be something new and so for us it's more about focusing on where is where are the ideas where they're not just like a next step forward but they're like a step change um and so, you know, you'll see people going from, so Compound gave us, you know, the magic of instant variable rate, variable term loans. So now the next logical step for many is, oh, well, we should make those fixed term, fixed, um, you know, uh, fixed rate. Great. That's, that's amazing. That's 
undoubtedly going to happen, but that's not where we in particular want to spend most of our time because anywhere where it's like the not logical uh, next progression step, other people will get to as well. It's going to get crowded. So we try like we narrow our focus to more uh, bigger step change type of uh, events. And so that's what we're doing to try and keep up with it because it's just, it, it's too much. There is, I've never been in anything like crypto where you picked a two week break and you need to relearn uh, so many things. It's, it's unheard of. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I think sometimes even a day break and you, <laughs> and you, you have to step back in and <laughs> learn what's happening. Um, but yeah, has anybody else got a, got a kind of take on that or, or a different approach to, to that? I would add, um, you know, you said how to make quick decisions. Uh, I don't make quick decisions. <laughs> I think, what, what, you know, in, in venture, you're afforded the, there's no luxury, but if you're making very fast decisions and you're not doing it right, uh, because any investment that we make has to be uh, very carefully considered because uh, we're in it for the long term. It's not like a trading where I say, okay, I'm going to jump into this. It looks interesting. Then I'm going to do my research and, and I'll set a stop loss in the meantime. You know, it's, it's, it's a very different uh, type of discipline. And, and I would agree you know, with what, what Jonathan said about not being able to keep up with everything. And yeah, you know, it's as as it grows, and it's like saying, okay, I, I invest in the internet. You can't keep up with everything that's being built on the internet because you just can't keep up with everything. Uh, we have the the benefit of of being rather narrow in our investment approach, so we're not investing in in everything that comes up. So you know, as we're not doing DeFi, uh, for example, a lot of people doing DeFi. It's very, very exciting, you know, to have, uh, you know, collateral on collateral and leverage upon leverage upon leverage. Um, but it's hard for me, and maybe somebody can help me out here on the panel. It's hard for me to see like where there's always uh, fundamental value creation. To me, it, it, it rhymes a lot with things I've seen in traditional finance of put, putting leverage upon leverage upon leverage and the thing at the bottom, which is supposed to be valuable, may not really have the value, but you don't really see it because there's three layers in between. Who wants to go I'd for it? I'd actually love to open that up. I'd love to open that up. Because, like, yeah. you know, this is, this is, you know, this is what I, you know, you and I know each other, Mark. So I know this is, you know, what, what uh, you know, your opinion. I know Santi's very, uh, uh, very into DeFi and, and also John. So, I, I don't know as much about Jalak if you're into DeFi as well or whether you you kind of uh, stay away from that. But I'd love to kind of open this up and 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 kind of see what you, what what you guys have to say to 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 Mark's um, point there. Yeah, I think it's a great point. I mean, I, I think this idea, if I understood correctly, the, the stack risk, right? Which is, yeah, it, it's, there's like a there's two components of DeFi. One, it's perfectly transparent in some capacity. And uh, to John's point, you know, you, you can, you're able to see all the transactions in real time. Like these, these protocols are designed to be not insolvent. Like they can't be insolvent by design, right? Maker, uh, Aave, Compound. I mean, these protocols like execute a certain logic, right? If, if collateralization falls below X, you liquidate. And then therefore, i.e. the protocol is okay. The You can't say that necessarily about your bank in, in traditional world, right? You don't understand what kind of investment policies and what the type of risk and the exposure that they have. And I think people learned that the hard lesson in 2008, where you had no idea, no semblance of how overexposed they were to mortgages and the assumptions that they were making on the correlation of housing prices. So, so that's the traditional world. But, but there is an argument in DeFi, which is um, 
through composability, like you have this stacked risk, right? If protocols are interacting with each other, and I think we've all seen the web, like Maker interacting with Compound and Sushi and Uniswap, like there's just like a web of connectivity in this space, which on one end is great, right? Because you get all these added benefits that you otherwise wouldn't have, right? You can be both a liquidity provider earning fees, but also you can use those liquidity shares and borrow against them. And though, and so it creates these new primitives that are pretty interesting for from a capital efficiency standpoint. But the criticism to that, and we've seen in some capacity, is that you're only as strong as your weakest link, right? I mean, there's no surprise. There's there's very little. There, there's relatively little Lindy in in DeFi, uh, meaning, you know, you have very limited standards, um, and you know, there's a lot of innovation. But if if a protocol breaks in that chain, uh, in that connectivity, then it can pose a systemic risk to DeFi. And so we think. Uh, well, I think about that a lot. Um, it's probably one of the areas in DeFi that that needs the most improving. Um, we need better insurance and risk management, and 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 sort of guardrails to prevent a a too big to fail event. Because uh, if if one really big protocol were to fall, then it could have a very cascading effect uh, across DeFi, and uh, I don't think it would be a fun event for any of us. Uh, I don't know if anyone would add to that. And just to you know, to add some of the things Santi's saying, the the stacking risk in DeFi actually is not even just in the financial realm, right? In terms of like asset prices and collateral being used, you know, there's a lot of borrowing of contracts, right? So certain contracts, once they've been out for a while, they kind of become ubiquitous. Anyone else can come and leverage those and use them in their own protocol, like maybe you know. They fork it and they do a little bit of modification, sometimes none. And so you can imagine if a contract that has been around for a long time is perceived to be completely safe, uh, were to, if that were not to be the case, that is the, the risk I'm most concerned with. Um, now, to the point again on uh, Mark's point of the collateral and collateral, um, the main difference here is that, so we used to sell mortgage bonds and those things are hot pieces of garbage. And, you know, at the end of a month, they would settle on the 30th of the month, even though I'd sell it on the 13th, it settles on the 30th. Why? Because like they're waiting for all the payments to come in. There's, you know, all of the, there's like a chain of papers that involves people calling other people and figuring out and like exchanging documents to figure out who at the end of the day is sending the check to fund this thing. This is not how DeFi works. All of those things are inextricably linked. When my collateral goes seven steps down uh, and is used in seven different places, I can unwind all of that in a single action. There is, a, again, so there's this very, very strong linkage and a lot of transparency that just doesn't exist in the uh, traditional financial system, which was built for a paper world, right? So like um, everything that we know on Wall Street was originally built to deal with paper system. It was built for a world where, you know, one of the uh, old colleagues I had used to talk about how one day a container full of bonds fell down the elevator shaft. $400 million worth of bonds fell down an elevator shaft and had to be recovered, right? So that's Wall Street of today is built, that's its roots. And everything with like the foundation was a paper system and everything just kept stacking on top of it. There was never a, a whole cloth reconstruction of the system. This is the first real earnest attempt of that. 
And that's why things are so different, right? Like, and so I, I, I share Santi's concern. I definitely like there is some systemic risk in it, except it's so much easier to unwind, um, you know, any complex action. Whereas on Wall Street, we'd have to call the next bank and the next bank and the next bank and the next bank and the next bank to hopefully maybe arrive at whomever it is that's at the end of that chain that's actually sending the payment that is at the end of the line of some complex, uh, you know, package security. Yeah, I mean, I think that's really interesting because I think, you know, you both kind of both kind of almost validated and invalidated some of the things that Mark was saying, you know, and I think that's probably, um, I guess, indicative of where we're at with it. So the maturity of of um, the DeFi space is still got some ways to go and we talk about those kind of risks. And I think, you know, they're you know, they do have the potential to kind of really set us or set the DeFi space back. Um, and so I think, you know, you, you both have very valid points. Well, I would just say, you know, I, I was I was asking a question for somebody to, to help me out. I wasn't necessarily no. criticizing it. It's just something that I don't do. But just you know, since Jonathan mentioned it, he said, like, with a mortgage-backed paper, these mortgages are backed by real estate. And if the everything was done correctly the way it should have been, there should, you know, normally the mortgage is worth, you know, less than the real estate that's, that's backing it. So when you have correctly done mortgage backed, even if you have, you know, pools of it and all of that, they should in the end be money good. Um, I'm not sure, you know, what's backing all the collateral other than crypto. Um and so if it's like Bitcoin or Ether, it, it's great. If it's if it's like the governance token of, uh, you know, that, that could be very good too, because, you know, the only thing that determines the price is what somebody's willing to pay for it. But, you know, we can see that, you know, very quickly people stop be willing to pay for the most risky things out there, especially when there's nothing, you know, backing them. Um, and that, that's just what I'm more concerned about. Uh, but in the meantime, people are printing money. So this is true. <laughs> Jalak, do you have a, do you have a take on this at all? Yeah, we, um, we're not that active in the DeFi space, certainly following it, um, because I'm very excited about what it means and this, uh, transparency and, and really true markets um, where, you know, you can decide what your level of risk tolerance is and act on that. And, um, you know, I, I think that is the ultimate promise. And uh, we're interested in, in anything that provides more equal access to investing in assets or, um, or um, uh, uh, monetizing your, your own assets. So I, I, I do think that um, we we're going to look at DeFi very differently 10 years from now, and it'll be way more integrated into our um, existing financial system uh, and offer different opportunities um, uh, for investors. So, so I, you know, I, I do, the reason we're not act, that active in it is, is and, and I do play around with it outside of the fund um, is, is just that I do think you have to like specialize in it as, as we have some folks here that, that do, because um, 
you know, there, there are a lot of developments in, in the sector and, and so, and, and, and a lot of expertise around it. So, um, I mean, where we'd be interested is, is the earliest, earliest stages of, of, um, of company creation or token creation um, in, in the sector. And, and so, you know, that, that's where we're likely to get more involved and we're certainly looking at certain derivatives um, uh, kind of software that's being developed and, so, so we will go really early um, at the creation of, of the entity, um, but in terms of actively trading uh, and, and providing liquidity, we, liquidity we, we don't do that. You actually, um, you brought up an interesting, an interesting thought there where you kind of spoke about, I guess, the appetite or the, um, the responsibility of the individual and, and the appetite for their kind of risk. And, and I, I did want to, I guess, put to you guys about, I guess, responsibility around um, what you invest in and the education piece. Because I know there's, there's, there's a kind of, there's a, there's a gap at the moment between the level of education and the learning curve that people, people need to, um, to kind of take on when they get into the space. And then I guess the level of, of responsibility of the different protocols of the chains to actually kind of educate um, new users. Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, do, do your own research. And um, But how much of that do you think is on the individual? How much of that is on the, um, the particular projects? And how much of that do you think investors think about when when they're um investing in a in a company does anybody have a yeah i'm sorry yeah i wasn't sure if it was directed at anyone um i think there's a base level of education that's incumbent on the people who are behind it especially if they're you know so there's different market types and so sometimes you're a founder and you're in a new market, you're creating that market. In that in that situation, if you're not going to educate people about what you're doing, you don't have anything. It's not going to, you know, you have to will this into creation, and this is like, you know, the the act of category design of market creation, right? So that involves a ton of education. Where you're tackling what could be described as an, as an existing market, I'd say there's it's less incumbent on the um, you know, on the entrepreneurs themselves to do that education. They should have education that's more like product specific, maybe make people understand how is it different, why they should use it. Um, but at that point, it becomes much more to the user in a way should be the one who is kind of like getting themselves up to speed. But in that place, right, there's a ton of materials that they can draw on, right? In today's age, you know, you want to find out about anything, Google's got your back, right? The library of Alexandria is like right here. Uh, you just have to tap into it. And so that's the main difference. Now, as investors, we ought to be very educated about the things we step into. You're never going to have perfect information. That's, you know, a recipe for uh, wanting perfect information is a good way to be a terrible investor. Um, but you must know what you're doing, right? Like you sometimes will be the first line of defense for the things you invest in, right? Because a lot of times, you know, prospective investors, well, they might not know the founder just yet. So they're coming to you with their questions. Uh, you know, prospective users, especially if we're talking about something that serves other networks, other businesses, you might be their first touch point. So if you're not educated about it, um, you're doing, you know, you're doing your companies a disservice. Uh, so that's 
kind of my take on it about how it splits between, you know, entrepreneur responsibility, investors, and uh, users. Awesome. Um, so we've actually been going uh, for quite some time. I didn't realize. So I've got quite a few more points I wanted to get to. Um, Obviously, you know, one of the biggest topics at the moment is NFTs and everybody's talking about them and we can't avoid talking about them. We, we won't avoid talking about them. But um, I wanted to, you know, get your opinion on why you think now has been a tipping point for, for NFTs. You know, they've been uh, around in kind of one form or another for almost about, almost five years. So I guess what's each of your takes on why now? Um, what are you looking at in the space? Do you believe in the space? Um, and and kind of what, what your take is on, on the NFT sort of universe. Anybody can start, but I'd love to hear everybody's opinion on it. Yeah, well, I'm not an expert in, in NFTs, nor do I claim to have a very refined uh, eye to curate. Um, but having, uh, I guess, been been spending more time in, in NFTs, I find them interesting in the sense that, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, they are they are vehicles to um, to tokenize X, not just art. I think it starts with art, but it can expand to other instruments like insurance contracts and real estate contracts, and um, and I and so. So addressing your question directly, like why is this time different? Uh, talking to, I guess, a lot of artists um, and like Justin Blau, like who's been one of the DJ that's like been at the forefront of this and been been at it for some years. He said different than 2017 because a lot of people were thinking about this in 2017 is that really COVID has um, made it extremely hard for artists to monetize and engage with their audience. Uh, and so NFTs are vehicles to do that. Um, and so that's why you see, or at least from his perspective saying that now I, a lot of artists that initially were skeptical. Now they want to, they want to go through the hoops of setting up a MetaMask account and, or, you know, cold storage and, and going with foundation and going to foundation or some of these other platforms, super rare to, to engage. Right. And once they're there, then they discover, well, this is interesting, right? Cause it can engage with my audience directly and the economics are much better. And, um, and then it allows you to do, uh, very interesting things. Um, uh, with an with like nfts it's not just like a digital picture you know it could be there could be embedded a lot of logic within that nft and just you can like i get excited because i think the this intersection of DeFi and nfts you can do a lot of different new primitives and and interesting constructs to finance and and like um you know like um commission art and and to um you know have interest bearing nfts and like some of these other things um so so i guess that's like one perspective of why you've seen, I think, a lot of uh, interest from at least from the supply side uh, of, of, you know, there's a lot of a lot of supply. Some of it is just what I think is just garbage, but uh, there are very high quality, um, you know, artists, musicians, uh, other just normal people that um, create really interesting art and get discovered um, in the digital context. Yeah, I, I think, you know, Santi, hit it spot on with just there was an environmental factor, right? An external factor that forced a lot of um, the interesting creators into it. Now, at the same time, also the infrastructure had been much more mature to make it much easier this time around, right? This time around, you had Zora, you had Foundation as two like very easy tools to do your minting and do your engagement. Uh, you had super rare, rareable OpenSea, you know, as like these live marketplaces for the things once you've minted them. 
and what I think helped to break into mainstream culture in a way like never before is now we had real IP, right? Like I'm a huge NBA fan um, and I know many huge NBA fans as well. And the incidence of cha- Top Shots bringing you like what it might be the most interesting, valuable IP in the world, right? The NBA. Um, and that I think is what really like, that was the, you know, the flashpoint moment, I guess, right? The thing that really put... Uh, uh, NFTs into just like the cultural zeitgeist is suddenly like, oh, a dunk of LeBron James is going for $50,000. Uh, the amount of people who are interested in the NBA and want a collectible from the league is far larger than, say, the ones who might have been interested in a fun game that looked like, you know, uh, you know, like Tamagotchi's on chain, which is 2017's CryptoKitties, right? Uh, it, you know, great that it came from the same people, but it was bringing that IP that brought a lot of that interest. And so that was the combination of both, you know, it was easier for high quality supply to come online because of this tooling, because COVID forced them for a new way to engage with their customers. But it was the incidence of very interesting IP and of, you know, artworks from artists that people want to see that brought the demand side together. And that just, you know, converged for a, a very interesting six months of that space. Yeah, and I think, um, Oh, yes, yeah, sorry. Go, 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 Jalap, yeah. go. Yeah, so I, um, we, we led an investment in a company called Curio uh, at the end of last year, and they work with larger brands to uh, help them create um, NFTs out of their library of content. And I mean, just six months ago, they couldn't really go to you know, these large entertainment companies and producers and, and uh, talk about NFTs. And, and they had to explain the whole concept to them. And, and it's just completely changed in the last couple of months. And um, I, I think the original willingness to even engage in that conversation from the brands um, is uh, because of COVID. I mean, they lost um, you know, that, that constant audience engagement that, you know, if you look at retail or um, uh, other, other brands, um, uh, they had to figure out other ways to get uh, engaged with their customers and it was all online. And, and so they started thinking more creatively about their content and, and how they could utilize that content to keep keep the audience engaged. And I think that's what's resonated, um, you know, with, I, it, it's interesting that, you know, we've just heard comments about how it's resonated with um, the, the individual creators and artists, but it also has very much started resonating with the larger brands that, um, you know, I thought it would be a much tougher sell for, for them. Um, and, uh, and they've really come on board very quickly. Yeah, I think the the cross um, cross pollination is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and Mark, did you have something? Did you? I, I really don't have that that much to say. <laughs> I, I don't understand myself. You know, the art market. Uh, just as an anecdote, I was at a friend's place a few years back, and there was a taxidermied mouse on like a pool raft, and I picked it up. I said, "Oh, this is interesting." So I put that down. It's an expensive piece of artwork. I paid $150,000 for it. Now it's worth $400,000. I said, oh, shit, it's a, it's a dead mouse. But, and, and so, that, you know, so it, I'm a bit mystified. It, it was from a famous artist, so it's worth a lot of money. That, that, that's how it works. Yeah. And, and, mm-hmm. I, and I guess the NFTs, like digital art, is not that different uh, from my perspective. But I think NFTs themselves have 
you know, massive, massive use cases, which we're only just, you know, scratching the surface of. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, um, so we're, we're kind of edging towards the end, I think, but there were two more questions that I just wanted to get in. So um, one is kind of off the back of the, the NFT thing, which is we're kind of seeing, I guess, um, talk of metaverses, right? And this is something I'm I'm quite excited about myself. And I think because of the maturity of technology, the convergence of, of, of different elements of Web3 decentralization, we're kind of starting to see that um that really take off. And I just wanted to kind of open open the floor and see what your take on on that is, you know, this kind of um ability to live in this meta universe and and kind of and really exist and 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 do crazy things i think it's really really interesting so i'd love to hear you guys um talk on that all right i'll go first on this one it'll be short i think the metaverse is an amazing amazing concept especially as we everything becomes more digitized and we spend so much time in in front of the computer if we can interact on any kind of, of level and, and have it somewhat gamified, I, I think it's, it's, we're just going to realize what, what the power of that it, it can be. And we're working on, on a potential investment uh, for the next fund uh, in this space as well. So, you know, you see like really, you know, people just get engrossed and live within games um and and if it, and if it becomes more like some pr- productive add productivity to it um then you can work sort of within this game and and develop and create things of real value yeah totally agree with mark on this uh, huge proponent of the metaverse we, we already live one you know this is like the most basic one just not as immersive uh so we're in one right now right yeah. If you have young kids, right, they're probably spending a lot of time either on Minecraft or Roblox. Those are like probably the most robust metaverses out there. Uh, you know, something like 15, 16 years ago, I spent the better part of my teenage years in World of Warcraft where, you know, I was convinced that very soon people like their job would be, you know, that someone would be a blacksmith in World of Warcraft. It's a profession that hasn't happened yet, not at the scale that I thought it would, but it's going to happen this decade. Um and so it just—it just an extension yeah, yeah. of what we're doing. I think it's natural that as we spend more time in in the digital um, world, uh, these metaverses become a bigger part of our identity and, and therefore capture a lot of value. Um, and so I think you're seeing with Fortnite, um, uh, as as you know, there there are concerts there and. At this intersection of, of VR, it could be a pretty immersive experience, um, not just like pixelated, like you know, like World of Warcraft stuff. But I think it's it's very immersive, and just younger generations are much more, I guess. Like, what's to say that you know? I think our my parents are always, you know, or, or just older generations are skeptical of no, a friend needs to be a physical friend, and you need to see them, and you know, that's what embodies a relate uh, like a, a relationship with a human being. I mean, I, I kind of don't necessarily agree with that, but I guess we're, we are called autists and in, in or some sort of shades of autism in, in crypto by being crazy that we're into space but i don't know like i have uh, uh especially with COVID, i think people realize that you know you can build really meaningful relationships in a digital context and 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 that's why i think you you, you will see a lot of value and that you know ultimately a lot of activity in these metaverses 
And actually off the back of that, um, Santi, and I think, you know, you and I have been in a few conversations around this about kind of um, pseudonymous and anonymous kind of communications and and kind of almost not having to to know uh, necessarily who that person is, but really what but what they stand for and what they've done um, and that kind of becoming more important and, and kind of that, that being something that, that web three really accelerates. I think that's kind of an interesting thing. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. totally agree. That That's, I mean, at a more like philosophical level, one of the things that I've always found fascinating about web three and this open source, I mean, I was just looking at this last night. So Ethereum now has like 2,300, 2,400 like active open source developers. I think that's larger than Linux. I mean, for a network that's like six years old, I mean, that's fascinating. Um, and I think um, one of the more rewarding things to see in this space is that, um, you know, anyone, anywhere, no matter who you are, what you stand for, who, what you look like, you know, if you're smart, if you have good ideas, you will be discovered. And I think you see that. Um, and so I think like open source communities and the compounding effects of that um, are going to produce some really interesting things. And so, I mean, my imagination doesn't stretch too far, but I know there are very smart people and developers because you're connecting to a, 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 a global mesh and network of really talented people that build off of each other. And, and so like, I mean, I guess that was the bed of Ethereum. And it, when it got started, you didn't really know what was, what was going to get built. And for so many years, it was like, okay, like, what is like this generalized consensus platform going to be used for? And then DeFi kind of maker, and then you had a stable unit of account and then opened up this whole universe that you see now. But, you know, DeFi is really two years old, but it processes, you know, has like 70 billion in total value locked and it's been a lot of value created. Uh, but as Mark or, or, or Yalek mentioned, like we're scratching the surface, I think. So, uh, but you sort of take stock that more and more people, I think, are paying attention uh, especially now with the co like the Coinbase IPO is interesting because it, it brings so much more attention. Be like, okay, there's a lot of value to be created here, um, and I think smart people want to build on difficult, challenging problems, and crypto has no shortage of that. And so you're at this kind of cusp of like more and more human capital will enter the space, and and you're going to be creating. I mean, just if you're not, none of this is financial advice, but if 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 you're if you don't believe in crypto, then you might as well short like human creativity and ingenuity because it expresses itself best in open source networks. You know what I mean? Like you can't compete this sort of cathedral versus the bizarre model. Like you just will not be able to compete against a force of nature of twenty five hundred developers that are constantly like building and off of each other. Google can't compete with that. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's. I mean, yeah, that's. I think why we're also excited about it and thank you Santi for for uh, it was an obligatory somebody had to say it this is not financial advice somebody had to say it thanks Santi <laughs> no, no, no. we should put that at the very front because yeah, we, should, we should have put that at the top right <laughs> um, but uh, I, I guess so there was another if, since we're since we're still allowed to to keep going um there was a, another question I had about I guess the disruption of of uh, VC and we're seeing now, you know, DAOs being created to um, provide liquidity. There was just, I think, this week, twenty million uh, raised in a couple of days by a uh, Neptune DAO to to kind of provide liquidity to new projects and kind of skip the need for for venture capital. And then, you know, we have uh, you know obviously launch pads and and all kinds of things like that. So. 
Um, I'd love to Guys, hear your take so, so on. Sorry, Zia and, oh. and the panel. I hate to jump in. We've let it go on seven <laughs> minutes long um, and, and we're behind schedule. Fantastic chat. Thank you all to the panelists that, that joined us with uh, that chat and Zia for moderating. Thanks for listening to the Blockdown Podcast. To connect with us on social media, buy tickets for the next Blockdown event, or find out more about EAK Digital, head to the show notes for further information and links to everything. See you next week.